Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership with the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. In this discussion with Kelly Bagby of AARP Foundation Litigation and Lori Smetanka of Consumer Voice, we'll talk about why the off-label use of antipsychotic drugs is a problem, your rights around medications and caregiving, and what to do if you think your loved one is being chemically restrained. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's program. I'm Lori Smetanka, the Executive Director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, and uh, I know folks are coming in on Facebook Live as well as coming in on Zoom, so we are looking forward to having you all here today to um, join us in our conversation with Kelly Bagby. Um, So today we're going to be talking about the use of drugs in nursing homes and other long-term care facility residents to sedate or control their actions or behavior or used for caregiver convenience instead of providing good care. When used this way, the drugs become chemical restraints and they can cause serious harm or even death for the residents. So as I mentioned, our special guest today is Kelly Bagby, who is Vice President of AARP Foundation Litigation, where she manages the office's work related to health, hunger, housing, and human services. Kelly specializes in civil rights and disability rights, health law, and other public interest areas with an emphasis on litigation. She previously worked with the Office of Counsel for the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as with a couple disability rights organizations in D.C. and Maryland. And Kelly has a wide range of experiences in both federal and state courts in dealing with topics related to the care of the elderly. So welcome, Kelly. Glad to have you here today. Thanks, Lori. Wonderful to be here. So tell us a little bit about the work of the AARP Foundation and your role there so people get to know who you are. Well, sure, I'd love to. So AARP Foundation is the nonprofit um, arm of AARP, and we do work on behalf of low-income people who are 50 years of age and older in, in a host of areas that impact their lives, so their challenges around food security, around housing, around social isolation. Uh, Those are areas where we um, do a lot of different work trying to connect people with uh, employment opportunities who have fallen out of the workforce and and also help prepare people's taxes. Uh, We provide tax support to uh, low-income people all over the country. Um, so the, the ARP litigation group is a team of um, a small but mighty team of attorneys that does work in a host of areas around housing, around uh, age discrimination, around pension and ERISA work, different benefits and consumer protection issues, reverse mortgage issues. But the team that I uh, work with is really focused on on healthcare, on elder abuse issues that impact people in nursing facilities and in other long-term care settings. We try to keep people from being forced against their will from having to go into nursing facilities, but we also, uh, and try to help them to age in place with dignity and pursuant to their own choices. 
But we've, um, over the years, realized that there are many people who are going to be forced to go into nursing facilities. And we want the care there to be as high quality and appropriate to their needs as possible. Um, so we've done a series of cases that uh, sort of led us to where we are with you and with Consumer Voice around a, a grant that, um, that we are working on together around trying to address the inappropriate use of antipsychotic drugs with people who have, especially people who have dementia, but also the inappropriate use of antipsychotics generally uh -huh. uh, for older people. Mm. So um, the work that you do is so important and you do have such a mighty team <laughs> um, that you work with. There's such a great group of people. Um, but talk to us a little bit about the antipsychotic cases. What drew your interest in them and why was this an issue that you felt was important as a, a foundation um, and association to address? Well, we, we, I became very consumed with the issue at a Consumer Voice conference uh, many, many, many years ago, and I was listening to all these people talking about how um, there was just this increased utilization of uh, drugs in facilities, and having worked doing fraud cases for the federal government, I had seen a proliferation of, of drug, the increased use of antipsychotic drugs in particular with older people. And, um, and there were a series of kickback cases that we, were, we had been involved in in the federal government where the Department of Justice had pursued these companies for off-label promotion of drugs um, with people for whom they're not clinically appropriate. And so, you know, people use drugs, all different things, off-label for a host of different reasons. Um, and, but there, there have to be clinical guidelines around that. And you have to, you shouldn't be using drugs against the label. So a lot of the drugs that are being used, like Risperidol, other drugs like that, are being used with, and they have a specific warning on those drugs that the FDA is their FDA's highest warning is a, a warning that says, if used with people with dementia, you have an increased risk of death. So mm -hmm. that, that increased risk of death is about three times more if it was used with a younger person. And the, the FDA tests are actually used, they, they only looked at people who are 65. So imagine you have someone who is 85. Wow. If, other complicating medical conditions. The, the incidence of death and mortality, the risk of harm to them is so much greater than it would be even for a person who's 65 who has does not have a mental health diagnosis. Obviously, antipsychotic drugs are, are lifesavers for people who need them. Right. But not clinically appropriate to give those drugs to people, then it is a chemical restraint. Mm -hmm. So we began looking at the Consumer Voice Conference um, I don't remember which year it was, but maybe 10 years ago, I began asking advocates to keep a lookout for cases that I could bring or be involved in. And I found a great one in California. And thankfully, a wonderful set of advocates allowed us to join their class action in, against a facility in California um, that had been they, they had a psychiatrist that was just every single person that he served they had about 240 patients over the course of three years. Every single one of those people was getting an antipsychotic drug with no informed consent at all. Wow. I mean, and, and they're so dangerous, as you said. Um, they've been proven to be so dangerous. You know, this is one of those issues that um, 
I've been hearing about ever since I started this work more than 25 years ago. The use of chemical restraints was a big issue back then. And um, so it's been a problem for decades. And um, even now, the data is showing that more than 179,000 people in this country continue to be um, administered these antipsychotic drugs despite not having any clinical diagnoses. So um, the work that you've been doing around this is definitely so important. Um, go ahead. Yeah, you too. I think that one of the part of the way that we've helped to understand this is by by talking to other advocates um, and 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 physicians, people connected with Consumer Voice, who have really helped us to. Uh, to sort of take away the, this knee-jerk reaction, which is what it is and with some chains and some facilities, it is just everybody's gonna get these drugs. Uh -huh. and, um, but I think that what we should really stop and think about is, what is it that you're trying to treat? If what you're trying to do is silence someone, and if that's the goal, that is by definition a restraint and it's a, and it's a chemical one, then these drugs that have mind-altering as well as physiologically altering impacts. And so if you don't take into consideration the side effects and monitor for the side effects and watch for them and certainly be aware of them, but also watch for them aggressively, you can get a person to deteriorate. And the class, many of my clients have deteriorated extraordinarily quickly, many of whom never could recover. Like within weeks, they were wow. at the door. Mm -hmm. So uh, talk a little bit about what you've seen with respect to why these drugs are often prescribed off-label or why, um, why people are using them as chemical restraints. What are some of the factors that apply to that? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think that um, many people who are using these drugs widely don't see the label. The labels, you know, a pharmacy is, it is packaging up the drugs in a way that the label that the FDA has mandated is long since removed from the drugs. Mm -hmm. So many doctors have just always used them. And so then they've been, there's a, a familiarity with them. And if you have a person who has certain kinds of communication things that they're trying to tell you, maybe they're trying to, they're spitting or they're yelling out or they're hitting people, that might be because they've lost the ability to tell you with words that they are in pain or that they have a fever or that they're uncomfortable and don't know why or they're scared or they're lonely or you know there are any number of socially isolated ways that people try to communicate when they've not they maybe have lost the ability to swallow so they can't speak as well so there are a lot of different reasons why people have these manifestations that that then somebody you know in a nursing facility or in a long-term care setting grabs for a bottle of drugs or writes a script for a medicated response, as opposed to saying, okay, first thing is, let's evaluate whether there's something actually wrong, like okay. medical, are you constipated? Have you, when was the last drinks you had? Check, are you dehydrated? Let me look at the way your face looks. Are you in pain? Is there a broken, bro broken bone somewhere? So the first place that people should stop and, and say, okay, someone is communicating something here. The, um, our, our mutual friend who has been my expert and is on your board, um, Dr. Jonathan Evans, has, I, I love his quote where he says, all, all, all behavior is communication. So if I, if I put my hand up, you know I'm trying to communicate to you. If I spit in a nursing facility, I'm not just doing that, 
for the heck of it. There's something I'm trying to communicate. And so these, uh, part of the problem is we as, as people who are watching and providers, unfortunately, who are overtaxed and understaffed, will make knee-jerk reactions to what they're seeing as opposed to making a stopping, making a clear clinical evaluation, really assessing what it is they're seeing and then trying to diagnose it rather than mute it. Like muting mm-hmm. it is not the same. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and I mean, you made um, a number of really important points there about the behavior being communication and, you know, really thinking about what the person is trying to tell you because for many people in nursing homes, particularly those with dementia, as the disease progresses, they lose ability to communicate verbally um, and, and in, even in some other ways. And so you really have to be cognizant that there are different ways of expressing themselves, that they are trying to communicate oftentimes through um, either reactions to what's being done to them or um, through uh, through actions that they're taking themselves. So that's a really um, important point. And and I think that that um, some of the reactions or actions that we see um, even causes a person sometimes to be at risk for being chemically restrained, would you say? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think um, one of my clients in uh, a case that we had a couple, just a year and a half ago, her, her dad um, got punched in the arm by another resident. And so he just, he knew, he didn't like this guy. He just, he didn't remember all the details about why he didn't like him, but he knew he didn't like him. And so when the next opportunity came, you know, he gave him a little sock back. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, he's carted off to the ER and for, uh, you know, he's in for a psych eval because, Mm -hmm. and so they loaded him up with drugs in the hospital drugs he'd never been on took him off of all the dementia drugs he had been on and and then sent him back to the nursing facility with a whole new set of prescriptions and um it you know very dangerous prescriptions and they they, he ended up developing parkinson's as a result of Hmm. shuffling behaviors and tremors and and nobody was monitoring them so not only did they have the perfect storm of doing all these things wrong diagnostically? Mm-hmm. They also um, didn't monitor for side effects whatsoever, and and didn't even when when I, you know, took a deposition of the medical director, he was unaware that he should have been monitoring for side effects, and that's that kind of stuff is scary. You know, that's scary that the doctors aren't aware that these drugs are not clinically appropriate. Mm. So clearly, um, we need to do a lot more education of the medical community, the providers, as well as families, um, and those that are advocating on behalf of residents. So that's why we were wanting to do this program. But um, another thing that you, you know, said was this, the staff that are overtaxed, you know, often that's, it's a knee jerk reaction to prescribe the drugs, but oftentimes, you see it being prescribed when the the staff are overtaxed. And so could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I fear that that's something that's going on right now behind closed doors and nursing yeah. facilities where there's such poor staffing going on. Um, but when you don't have sufficient staff and there are a lot of, um, you know, the, the residents remain the residents. They, they have their same needs day in, day out. And their needs with social isolation and fewer staff may exacerbate. And so they, they're... Um, the things that they they things they want attention on, 
uh, and should have attention. I guess that's what they're in a nursing facility for. Their daily care needs, their food, drinking, go to the bathroom, positioning, all those things uh, they need staff for. And if you don't have staff and, you, and people's needs are going unmet, you're gonna have more complaints. And the more complaints you have, the more the staff are feeling overwhelmed. And so these, this is a cycle that oftentimes has led in our experience to an increased use of these drugs with um, people who, because the staff is seeing, okay, I have all these people complaining simultaneously and they're you know, getting into arguments with each other and we can't, we can't function like this. And so, and that's not the line staff's fault. That is the fault of the, of the facility that allowed for the understaffing to, to get to that point. And so what happens then oftentimes is you see the um, facilities start just giving much more, many more people these, these medications than even are, um, than they're even mo can monitor for. Yeah. They're, they're not paying attention at all. And these drugs cause um, what, you know, what's called somnolence. So like where you get really dr drowsy and droopy and you can't, you can't hold yourself up properly in your chair or in your, on your bed. So people tend to fall more because the more they are on these drugs, they're in, they, they have more risks of being unsteady on their feet or falling out of a chair or a bed or rolling off a bed and they can break bones. And so there's a number of really dangerous things that happen. But I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a, the things you have to monitor against with, with when you have this problem are all things you need more staff, not less staff to be able to monitor. So if they, people, a lot of times our clients have um, lost interest in eating because yeah. there are so many drugs and they, um, because they're not eating, they're losing weight. And if you're not monitoring people's late weight loss, you could be basically pushing them towards a, an even more dangerous situation and they become more delirious and they become more at risk. And so it's a, it's a, a cycle that keeps spinning and spinning and spinning until finally, you know, people are, people are not dying from the drugs. They're dying from the things the drugs do to them and their mm -hmm. body giving up and, you know, eventually either dying of a heart attack because they haven't, they've been un dehydrated or un um, malnourished for weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, it's so tragic when you hear about some of the results um, from from the use of the drugs and some of the um, the ways that it plays out in people's bodies and and some of the reactions to them. Um, but you know, instead of that knee jerk reaction of prescribing the drugs or um, or you know, even thinking about, you know, what could be done instead to address the needs that the people are having. Um, what have you found in your work that has been successful in, uh, instead of the use of the drugs, in addressing people's needs so that they aren't, um, not only are, are they having their needs met, but they're um, not exhibiting the, um, the actions or, or reactions that people are finding troublesome. Right. Well, thankfully, I've been blessed enough to work with some really amazing experts who are extraordinarily well-versed in non-drug interventions that work, actually work. I mean, these, these like chemical restraints don't work. They're just, are, they just quiet down whatever it is uh -huh. that's disruptive. Um, but there are things that do work, and that is usually it has more to do with um, with a person with dementia in particular 
trying to reroute them to something that is more engaging. If they're bored, try to get them to a situation where they're not going to be bored. If they're, um, if, like I said before, though, the first, the first round of, of attack has to be make sure there's no medical underlying medical problem that's mm -hmm. leading to this. Um, but the, the, the organizations that have really been studying it um, have, I think there's some brilliant studies out there. And I think that may be the next thing that you and I work on in, on this campaign is trying to get as much information to people about what does work. But the listening to what a person is actually trying to communicate is the first, the first okay. obviously the diagnostic thing, but also if a person is, um, because of their past life and experiences, they've convinced themselves that they're in a situation that is different than what they're actually in, that to, to deal with that confusion and, and meet them there. Like, I know that you guys have talked at your conferences about changing when people are having to get up at six in the morning and they, you know, really they want to, they maybe wanted to get up at three in the morning because they thought their day was beginning at three in the morning. Right. But because that's that messes up the facility schedule there's no flexibility there and then that you know makes people kind of burn bridges with staff and so trying to meet people where they are and understand what the you know what it is they're communicating and not make them live an institutional life even though they're living in an institution you can have some flexibility in the way you you talk to people and if when you do that that seems to have a much better impact um and and i think that the there's some wonderful nurses that i that i really love working with at the university of pennsylvania and they have um really taught me that uh, what you have to do is help nurses to be able to know what it is they're seeing is if nurses know what they're seeing everything's going to go out, go work better. You know, if you train CNAs to recognize that um, that shuffling behavior is not a normal aging process, that's actually a sign that you are giving somebody a drug that they're having a bad reaction to. The more that you can train people to understand what it is that, um, that they're seeing, the faster they could stop it and identify it. But you have to, if people don't even know what they're looking for, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that is a, tremendous problem and and by the time you realize it can be too late mm -hmm. and and I, I think that that's a great point I mean I, I think knowing the person and watching for changes in their condition watching for changes in their behavior um, and then starting to assess what it is that they might need looking you know at environmental factors for example like are mm -hmm. they sensitive to noise or cold or heat or interactions with other people you know you mentioned the resident earlier who had a, a altercation with you know another person there are some factors like that that could be affecting their behavior as well as medical conditions that could be affecting it and so it's really important for the staff to be looking at at those behaviors so training obviously is really critical and being aware of the residents um, individualized needs is really critical and getting good assessments of mm -hmm. those because, I mean, with, with poor staffing also comes a lack of continuity of staffing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, if you have a different CNA every day, they're not going to know that this is not how you're normal, this is not your baseline behavior. Right. And so if you, if you have con continuous staffing of people who understand your needs, actually have read your assessments and ha you have a good care plan, like those are 
Those are critical. Um, so they, you know, we're all only as good as the tools we're given. And if, if the CNAs don't have the right tools and they have no real continuity with a, a resident, it's, it's very difficult for them to recognize what they should be doing. Right. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I think why we're um, so in favor of consistent assignment of staff for residents, because that does provide some of that continuity. Um, So not only do you need the numbers, but you need the staff assigned to people on a daily basis so that they get to know them. Um, So you've talked about a couple um, signs of or examples of people some of the symptoms that they're showing that um, indicate that there might be an issue or that they might be um, they might be chemically restrained or um, having these drugs used. So can you talk a little bit about what some of those are? Yeah, the, the tremors are the big one, but that's actually, that's, you know, tremors like this where your hands are shaking or your, your legs are shaking and someone just can't sit still. That's a, a very big one, but that's, that's, you know, very Parkinsonian. Those can be reversed if you take someone off the drugs, but they, they can't always. Um, so the difficulty swallowing is another. The uh, lock, lack of appetite is definitely a big one. Loss of, loss of weight is another. Mm-hmm. An unsteady gait where they're walking and they're, you just feel like they're just teetering. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, ortho, I personally have orthopedic problems. I have an unsteady gait. It's, that's not a normal process. Um, if somebody just doesn't suddenly get that, they've right. never had those problems and they suddenly have an unsteady gait, uh, that's a reason for great concern. Um, delirium is a, there's a, it's, that's the catchphrase for it, but delirium is basically just confusion. If you, if somebody just seems like they're having a hard time understanding what you're saying or, or they need you to tell them the same thing, there are certain parts of that that are normal um, parts of, of dementia and other parts of it that are not. But you should, you should never expect that um, that's going to, that, you know, it, and if it does, I believe that if someone's dementia worsens dramatically quickly, that's a sign that you should worry uh-huh. and take action. But I think um, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, Lori, is, and, and I don't know that nursing facilities take advantage of this very much, is getting um, a baseline behavioral assessment for somebody. And if you if you really understand what they're kind of their trigger events are. What are the things that put them off? As you were mentioning, noise or too much light or a weird schedule or some someone they just don't get along with. Um, if you do, if we could make sure that facilities uh, and, and people out in the community were getting that sort of baseline evaluation of somebody when their behaviors change, it will help us to then track when um, something unusual happens. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the problem is we, when when somebody is in a nursing facility, we assume they're going to get worse, and and that's not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to happen that way. It's, mm-hmm. because, it's often because of the use of these drugs that they do get worse. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, what you um, said about like knowing the person and and the baseline. Um, made, made me remember a, um, a resource that we had developed a few years ago um, about knowing the person. And so that, and it's something that could be done, you know, upon admission or early on when you um, enter a facility and the resident themselves could fill it out or their family members could fill it out. But it kind of talks about what, what were your daily habits and um, what are things you like and dislike and, and what are your normal maybe reactions or responses to things so that it could help the staff know 
know who you are so that they could be more aware of changes in your behavior and when they might um, need to be concerned about some of those things. Absolutely. And I think that in other, with other populations that I've worked with, that's a much more, much more demanded. It's a, it's imperative. And like, if you're working with people with intellectual disabilities, you would assume you've had that baseline information. And, but when you have people in nursing facilities, it's sort of like, oh, is that something we could do? And I think that we, we've relegated, I think, our, our older people in, in nursing facilities and in other long-term care settings to a place where they're just not getting as good a care as, as the COVID, I think, the COVID virus demonstrates. Right. That not, we've just, we've downgraded the importance of their, the quality of the services we're providing them. Mm -hmm. And it's unacceptable and we shouldn't, we shouldn't, none of us accept that. Right. And certainly, I think, um, you know, you've mentioned the COVID crisis a couple times. I mean, we also, like you, are very concerned about um, what's happening in, in some of the facilities and whether um, these drugs are being used more frequently with people with dementia as a means of keeping them quiet, keeping them contained. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, a very serious concern. And, and it is one that we think families need to be paying attention to at this point. You know, we know that they're not in there, but certainly um, they should be, if they're able to do either um, phone calls or video chats with their family members or see them through window visits or however, to really be paying attention to what they, you know, their appearance and their behaviors and kind of, you know, how they're interacting with you and, and ask questions of the staff about um, what's going on with them. Well, one of the other symptoms that, that I didn't mention is slurred speech. So if, if uh, not, you can hear on the phone. So if you hear that someone's speech is being slurred, you should absolutely file a complaint with the state survey and cert agency and try to drive them towards making a, a complaint survey in that facility. Because if if there's if your resident, your family member, your loved one is is suddenly getting drugs and you didn't know about, it's happening yeah. more than just your resident. So yeah. you need to really uh, you know, don't don't ever hesitate to file a complaint with the state, um, and I think that's it's critically important that we continue to push uh, for that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to quickly say, Laurie, is one thing that you and I talked about. That um, another piece of this is patient dumping. That if people are if people are getting drugged against against their will, chances are this is also a facility that might be looking to dump out people who are, um, you know what in their minds more complicated require more staffing um and then from the residents uh, from the facilities perspective disruptive in their minds um so they these are two sides of the same coin that the chemical restraints and patient dumping are two ways to quiet down residents uh if you are a facility that is inclined to do that right so uh i i also urge that um on the advice of, of Lori, to, that people should continue to file administrative appeals if, if someone is involuntarily um, removed or discharged from a facility mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about what a person's rights are related to medication and directing their care. And, and do they have to take these drugs if they're prescribed for them? So um, can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about getting consent for them? Yes. Yeah, so the under Ivory 
every state law that under federal law, you are not allowed to give chemical restraints to a person. So a chemical restraint would be one that is not clinically appropriate. But if you, in order to, to have that conversation, like I can't just say, Lori, I'm going to give you this pill and you have to take it no matter where I am, because that would be, and if I force Lori to take it, that's a battery on her body. Like that's a un, unwanted touching and unwanting forcing me, forcing something on Lori. And so the same is true for nursing facility residents. And that's part of the difficulty is that some nursing facilities believe that by consenting to come to a facility, you are consenting to all treatments that they're going to, you know, provide you. And that is simply not true. You, the, the requirements under um, under the law are that in order to prescribe a medication and administer it, you have to get informed consent. If a person lacks the ability, the capacity to give the consent themselves, then there, there's a list of decision makers who should be consulted and consent should be obtained from those people. Okay. So they could be surrogate decision makers um, by in your family, they could be someone you gave a medical power of attorney to, or if you had, if the person had a guardian, it has to be that person. But there, there should always be informed consent, not just consent, not just I'm passing you this. And then if you want your mom to stay in this facility, you better sign that form. That's not informed consent, that's right. coercion. And so you have the right to get the information about why you're getting the drug about what the side effects of the drug would be, the cost benefit analysis of the drug. You might get this side effect, but we think it's gonna treat this. And so you get to weigh those things and decide with the information about whether it's the right choice for you. Um, but if you, you know, if you're to have a, a real and frank conversation with somebody about giving someone a black box warning drug, it says right on it, if I give this to you, it will increase your chances of death. That is a fact that should be provided to somebody. That's real information that I would want before okay. I accepted a treatment that, that it could kill me. Okay. I mean, that's what a real informed consent conversation should be with these drugs. And I, I have never heard of anybody in one of these facilities getting that kind of information. About yeah. I, I think that that's right. And I, I think people need to know that these drugs... Um, when they're used off-label like this, they are not prescribed treatments for dementia. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they don't, people don't always understand that. So it's important for them to know that they are not um, approved treatments for symptoms of dementia, um, which I think is also why they need to be asking questions. And um, we, uh, as you know, Kelly just released a new resource for family members about uh, a, a new drug card of questions that people can ask um, of their caregiver to um, help them decide whether or not this is appropriate, or at least help um, start the conversation about what treatments are actually appropriate in these situations. So um, that's something that folks can get on our website um, at www.theconsumervoice.org um, that's available there for download and we have hard copies of that available as well. Um, so these drugs have been prescribed not only as um, an ongoing prescription, but they're also used pretty widely as PRN, aren't they, um, for people? And um, so there are, which means as on an as-needed basis, um, which gives the um, 
the nurse or the, the caregiver a lot of discretion in when they're using the drug. But in all situations, um, they should be monitored, um, aren't they? And um, evaluated as to whether or not it's appropriate for use. Right. And so some people can take these drugs and have very little reaction. Others, it just takes one pill and they will have an adverse reaction. So, you, you know, there are in, it being PRN does not eliminate the risk by any stretch of the imagination because it depends on your blood chemistry, whether you have, you'll be one of those unfortunate people that it doesn't take prolonged use to, uh, to have a bad reaction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for regardless of what, whether they're an ongoing prescription or used as PRN, the facility has a responsibility to evaluate the appropriateness of the drug um, and also to look at how to wean the person off of it, to decrease the do- either the dosage or the frequency of use until they're not, need- not having to have it anymore. So that's a really important point too. And again, that also requires informed consent, even to take somebody off of the drugs, because taking them off the drugs, if you do it too quickly, can, can also have very bad adverse effects. So the, mm-hmm. the changes in the administration of the drugs, either up or down, should have informed consent, and the family and whomever else should be aware of what they should be watching for. Absolutely. So um, what... what- would you recommend that family members do or even residents themselves do if they have concerns about the drugs that are being prescribed or they have concerns that they're being used as chemical restraints? Yeah, I mean, I, I say this about nursing home residents, but everybody, anybody who's being prescribed an antipsychotic drug, your first question has to be why? What, why, what do you expect this drug to do? Why this drug? What are the, what is the, 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 diagnosis that you think is the underlying problem for me, what makes you think that? Uh, like, where's the assessment of what this, what you think this drug will do for me? And what are the things I should be what worried about? What are the alternatives to this drug? Are there, are there any alternatives? And if you don't know that there are alternatives, you know, you've got to ask as many questions as you can about the, the why, the what do I expect are there are there things that we can do short of drugs and what is it that are the risks what are the real risks the real life dangers of taking this Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think asking the questions, and, and that can be done just directly with the healthcare provider, but they can also be asking for a care planning meeting where they can reassess the needs of the individual and looking at what the plan of care is for that person and looking at the non-pharmacological interventions that are being prescribed and really insist on those. Yeah. Well, and I also think that some people are just going to never want to be in a nursing facility. And so if they just don't want to be there, they should also ask for help to get out. And if, if that's really what the problem is, is that they just are unhappy and the isolation is just too much for them. They want to get out. They need to try to ask that. That is also something to go to the state survey and cert uh, Mm -hmm. because discharge planning is also a requirement for the nursing. And that they, they should also feel free to ask and demand for assistance um, from the long-term care ombudsman or from uh, legal services providers or from you know, their, their protection and advocacy program in their state. But we, we need to address this at all sides. It's, it's just, you know, we, sh- we can't leave people languishing in these facilities and we certainly can't leave them languishing in facilities where they're being chemically restrained. 
Absolutely. And you referenced the long-term care ombudsman program, which um, as most people know are advocates for residents of long-term care facilities and they can help them with complaints or concerns about their care and their services are free um, to the user. And you can find your ombudsman program again on our website at theconsumervoice.org. There's a map there under get help and you can find the ombudsman that's in your community there. Um, so, um, a couple takeaways that I've taken from um, today that people I think need to be aware of is number one, they need to be paying attention to their um, loved one and any changes in behavior, changes in condition, changes in the way they're reacting um, to certain situations, um, but also to be asking questions um, about not only the drugs, but the care that's being given or not given, because I think both of those are um, equally important. And then um, the third piece is to, to take action if they have concerns, to not only be asking questions, but get help if they need within the facility or outside the facility. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, if I approach things as a lawyer, because that's what I am, but I, I would ask that you do take action in a way that creates a paper trail so making a report to the state allows for there to be a paper trail so that that if if it happens that people after the fact have to take action uh, lawyers like me or ombudsman later trying to make sure that other people in the facility are safe that having the, the formal complaints made really does help and we can then we can bring about enforcement i mean enforcement is is critically important, and I, you know, I think if if you have um, you in any of your states are seeing that there's a problem with real enforcement, we would we would like to hear about it uh, mm -hmm. at ARP Foundation and and certainly Consumer Voice, but we we do want to make sure that people are um, bringing these bringing these any bad care needs to be brought to the surface in order for it to be addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, Kelly, um, were there any other points that we didn't touch on today that you wanted to make related to this issue? I, I think uh, there's a question that just popped up that I, I find intriguing. Um, and I think the, the question was, is there a way to make it so that nursing facilities are more willing to train their staff on this? And you know, I've I've tried to do it by suing them, which is probably not the <laughs> it's probably not the easiest pathway. Um, the federal government tries to require it in the conditions of, particip of participation. Consumer Voice just tried to, and other ombudsmen have tried to do it by corralling, uh, trying to build bridges with providers to try to get them to train their staff. But I think this is a multifaceted issue, and I think, um, you know. New consumer voice raising this issue up in the way that it is, is I think the, a really critical step. Um, this is a three part of a three year campaign that consumer voice is doing with ARP foundation. And we're going to keep uh, our, our goal is to address that question. How do we push this to the providers to make sure that the providers are really pushing out this messaging? The, the way that Lori and I have tried to think of it is we need to train the nurses, not just the nursing facilities. The, the nurses are the ones, and nurses and CNAs and the, the DO, the directors of nursing, those are the ones who should be incentivized because they actually do understand how this works. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, you know, the facilities themselves maybe have different incentives, you know, financial incentives, but the, the nurses, I have faith, 
are, are going to um, really push these issues out. And I think that's part of our longer term campaign that we're, the two organizations are trying to work on. But I, I think it's a critical question and I think we need to keep, you know, we're open to hearing suggestions about how we might do it, but we'd need to, we need to all work on that together. Really yeah. good change. Absolutely. I agree that it's a multifaceted approach that we need to be um, targeting, um, targeting everyone, you know, um, and I think that um, definitely the nurses, uh, I think a lot of information is being still shared with providers um, about this this issue and i think that getting family members to understand that this is not okay that they should be raising awareness and asking questions and challenging the use of these drugs um, in their loved ones i think is also critical um, getting a groundswell of support from among family members i think is also um, a really important piece and and i i think we've been certainly moving in the right direction and, and getting some good policies in place, it's now getting them all implemented um, yeah. in a way that is going to make the best difference for, for residents. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, in, in, uh, by making sure, I think one other area to think about if, as advocates is making sure that there are good laws on the books in each state. Um, to enable people to bring private rights of action to enforce this, this informed consent. You either have informed consent or you do not. It's a, it's a bright line rule, right? And it's a kind of an easy way to enforce your rights. If you'd never got informed consent, um, then, then that's, you know, you don't even have to prove all the damages that happened to you. You can just sue on that alone. And that's, I think, part of this culture change that needs to happen is this, it's not acceptable to drug people with no consent. That's just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we've gotten to the point in our society where we think it's okay if they're in a nursing facility, and it's not okay. Right. We wouldn't accept it in a hospital. We shouldn't accept it in a nursing facility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I think this was really informative. I think you gave great advice and <laughs> I look forward you. to lots more conversations um, that we can share with people and, and resources on this issue. Definitely appreciate your dedication and all of the work that you have been doing and that of the foundation, um, which as you mentioned, is partnering with us on this campaign. We call it Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints and we have a dedicated webpage that we're continuing to add information to and resources to that we're working on um, so our listeners can get more information about that on the Consumer Voice website at again www.theconsumervoice.org so thank you so much Kelly thank you. thank you and thanks to your audience thank you thanks for everyone for joining us today we'll sign off now have a good rest of the day bye Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast and find more information about the campaign. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.